number one, to be respectful of the subject's time. Number two, to reach out when you don't need something, just to check in. And the last thing is write a handwritten note of thanks if someone gives you time. The other way is to try as best you can to be authentic. Welcome to the Sports Business Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Berger. You can find the Sports Business Radio Podcast over 13 years, 400 episodes featuring conversations with people like Mark Cuban, David Stern, Jeannie Buss, Charles Barkley, Jack Nicholas, and Kyrie Irving on iTunes or at sportsbusinessradio.com. We're ranked in the top 100 of the business news podcast section on iTunes. Follow us in between podcasts on Twitter at SB Radio. We've been named a top 50 followed by Forbes.com for three consecutive years and on Instagram at Sports Business Radio. My guest this week is Tom Rinaldi, ESPN reporter and master storyteller. Tom has won 12 National Sports Emmy Awards, six National Edward R. Murrow Awards, and a host of other honors for his work. Among his stories are the profile of the man in the red bandana detailing the heroism of Boston College athlete Wells Crowther during 9-11, which earned the National Sports Emmy Award for long feature reporting. The story also became the subject of Tom's first book, The Red Bandana, released in 2016. You've seen Tom cover everything from golf to tennis to college football on ESPN. He's the network's go-to reporter when it comes to conducting one-on-one interviews with people in crises, including his interviews with Tiger Woods and Manti Teo. Tom, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. It was so great having you at Sports PR Summit last month at the Players' Tribune. Your conversation with Rick Buecher was one of the highlights of our event. The feedback I got from everyone there was they wish it could have gone for three hours, your conversation with Rick. So thank you so much for joining us. I don't know what that says about the the uh, the agenda items that followed or the <laughs> fact that people just were, were all, I guess that maybe the entropy had set in and people didn't want to move from their seats or whatever it was, but I don't know that we were captivating to that degree. But it's great to, to be with you. I had a great time with Rick. I uh, loved being a part of the event. It was a, a great, great way to meet other people in the business and certainly in the, in the crossroads where you do a lot of your good work. So I appreciate you having me, Brian. Well, thank you. And as I told you, and you know, I'm not just saying this, but when I was Drawing up the agenda for Sports PR Summit, you were number one on my list, and and that's why I'm happy we're speaking today. I think you are the best storyteller in broadcasting, bar none, news, sports, any journalism. Your stories are just so captivating, so it's really great to have you on today. I feel like this is like the uh, overtime version of the conversation that you and Rick had at Sports PR Summit. We get to continue a little bit of that today. Well, I appreciate that, and I've known Rick for a very, very long time, and have certainly watched his career take its different turns. And uh, again, it was great to spend time with him and, and with you. Let's start with your early career. Uh, I've read your bio, and you were a high school English teacher, and you taught handball, and you go from that to journalism. Walk us through how you made that transition. Right. Uh, so when I graduated from college, I went to school in Philadelphia at uh, at Penn, and my first job was at a private school, a fantastic uh, prep school, Shady Side Academy, which is in the Fox Chapel neighborhood of Pittsburgh. I did that for a couple of years, and then I left and went to the, by some definitions, I guess, the other end of the spectrum in American education. I went to a public high school a zone high school in New York City in the South Bronx, Morris High School. It's Colin Powell's alma mater, hmm. uh, where at the time uh, the school was situated in the poorest congressional district in the United States. Uh, and the school, I learned a great deal in both postings. Uh, I learned a great deal about the, the, capacity, the students' capacities for learn to learn, a great deal about the power of expectation. And I also learned, Brian, to a degree, when I got to the Bronx, despite the fact that I was born in Brooklyn, how sheltered I think I was growing mm. up in suburban New Jersey and going to college. It was something that 
I really learned a lot from both postings as well as coaching in both spots. I coached basketball and soccer in Pittsburgh, and then I coached handball, as you said, the absolute most urban of sports, which was, uh, 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 you know, when you say to people handball, this isn't team handball that you see in the Olympics. This is basically a hard rubber ball that your hands get calloused over and you are hitting it against a stone slab of a wall. And uh, I'm happy to say all these years later that we were a district co-champion when I coached, (laughs) which had nothing to do with me. And it's had to do with our great kids. And uh, I then decided to make a turn, and I went to journalism school at Columbia. And uh, my path changed from there. You One of your early jobs, I'm based in Portland, Oregon. I'm sitting in a studio right now here in Portland, Oregon. You worked for KATU, the ABC affiliate in Portland. I did. It was the, I did. It was the second job. My first job was at WNDU, uh, at the time owned by Notre Dame uh, in South Bend. I was a news reporter, general assignment reporter. Same in Portland, Oregon. Loved Portland. The uh, Northwest is, without question, the best summer for my liking in the United States. Uh, Low humidity, beautiful skies, no bugs, just great weather, everybody outdoors, such a vibrant place, loved Portland, Uh, was there for a couple of years and then went to Sacramento for a short time and then got my first job in sports at the the now shuttered CNNSI network. And uh, a few years after that, got a great break and went to ESPN. Is it true that when you were at CNNSI, ESPN offered you a job, you turned it down, and then when CNNSI shuttered, ESPN said, "We'll still have you." Yeah, that was a uh, that was a career suicide moment. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking into turning down the worldwide leader, uh, and then a, a year later, the network shuttered, and I came crawling back over broken glass to see if they would have me. Um, and really, they would not have worked out, as is the case with many, many different instances in my career, Brian, if not for luck and timing. Uh, Melissa Stark, if you you remember, was uh, the Monday Night Football sideline reporter. Uh, That was an ABC at the time. She became an ABC headcount employee. And as a result, that opened up a headcount for ESPN. And uh, I was able to, to beg my way back in and get the job. You do so many things now for ESPN. We see you on golf. We see you on tennis, college football. We see you in studio shows. Uh, as I said at the beginning of the show, you're the go-to reporter for people in crises like Tiger Woods and, and Manti Teo. It's rare, Tom, where you see someone wear that many different hats. I think in, in broadcasting, especially at the network level, we see someone kind of specialize in one sport or, you know, just do a studio show. How did you kind of morph into this utility player, so to speak, for ESPN? I think the real key there was a profound lack of expertise in anything. (laughs) (laughs) That that helped me a lot. I think that and saying yes. Um, But but I've been very, very lucky to be asked a real – there have been a handful of people, as there are for you, Brian, anyone who's listening, mentors who have really – helped me by giving me opportunity, by challenging me, by giving me ways to grow, by giving me constructive and at times certainly tough and and needed feedback. Um, I was hired as a bureau uh, reporter to work out of the New York Bureau. That was my first job. But really, the job very quickly morphed into doing human interest stories, if you will, across all sports. And then from there, it morphed into going to cover some of the golf events that we then had in our portfolio, the British Open, the U.S. Open. I then moved into the telecast side to do essays and interviews. From there, uh, I became a, you know, a feature reporter for game day, which was probably the break of my career. Uh, it's just been a phenomenal ride here with game day. Now, I think going to be my 14th year or 13th. 14th season with the show. Uh, and then I moved from there into sidelines. Um, I've moved into play by play with tennis. I'll be doing play by play at Wimbledon this year, at the U.S. Open this year. 
uh, obviously two of the huge biggest events in the sport, which we have in our portfolio. Uh, it's just been great. So I always tell people I sort of do, you know, five things or six things. I do the sports you mentioned, I do the human interest stories, and then I do whatever they ask me to do. And that's what's morphed into the spot that I have now. One of the things that I admire from afar about you the most is when I see you, whether it's with your colleagues at ESPN or when you're interviewing someone like a Tiger Woods, the perceive respect that they have for you. You know, you can tell when people are like, I don't really want to be talking to this person. But when you're doing an interview, the person is captivated. They're engaged in the conversation. Maybe you can talk for just a minute about, you know, I I know that's not dumb luck. That is the residue of hard work and being respectful and success. But how do you get to that point where you build that respect with the subjects that you're interviewing? That's a t- fantastic question. I'm not sure I have a neat and clear answer, but the beginning of my answer is actually a question back to you. When you say you feel as though you notice that, Brian, you can perceive that between interviewer and subject, my question to you is how? How does that present itself to you? That, that you sense a connection between subject and interviewer versus when one is not there. How do you perceive that? The number one thing, and keep in mind, when I'm not doing this show, my other job, I'm a strategic PR consultant. I've been doing this for years. I used to work for the Portland Trailblazers. So, you know, that's how the Sports PR Summit was born. The number one thing I would say is body language. When someone doesn't want to be somewhere, there's no eye contact, they're squirming, you can just tell, like, they'd rather be somewhere else. And even when you're interviewing someone in crises, they don't have that bad body language. They're engaged. They're listening. You know, maybe they're going to give you one-word answers or, or not the long answers that you're hoping for, but they at least look to be engaged with you, whereas with other reporters I watch, it's like they want to be anywhere but that place. I, I, I mean, it's a very, very kind evaluation of my connections with coaches or athletes or subjects. I, I frankly, Brian, I think it's overstated. I don't know that, that I carry any great respect among athletes and coaches who have to do or, or who do countless interviews. But if I could give three simple notions, it would be these. Number one is to be respectful of the subject's time and efficient with the subject's time. In other words, if you were to say, Brian, can I grab you three questions, 90 seconds, honor that. Right. If you're on to the fifth and sixth question, you know better than anybody, given given your past gigs, an athlete and a coach and a team has a lengthy memory. This guy said it was going to be three, and now it's six. Right. Next time... You're not going to have the credibility when you come back with three or six. And obviously, these are more like sideline or or quick hit situations. Number two is, and I've I've been too slow perhaps to notice this, and that's to reach out. Uh, I think as you as you would in, in any human interaction when you don't need something, be in contact with a coach or a program or a team or an SID for a collegiate team or a media relations head for a professional team or an agent when you don't have a need just to check in, just to say, how are you doing? How are things happening for you professionally or personally? Or you had mentioned your son was going to play in this basketball tournament. How did it work out? While that might seem to be manipulative or it might seem to be shallow, I think people regard it with the opposite intent, that this person actually is going to reach out to me without hat in hand, without needing something. And the last thing is, and it's a very, very simple thing, and I don't do it as often as I should. I should do it 100% of the time, and I don't, but I try to. It is so simple, Brian, and it's to write a handwritten note of thanks if someone gives you time. If someone sits down with you, and I do that, uh, not all the time, not as often as I should, 
but I try to. I recently just spent time with a with a, a you know a head coach in college, and you know the very first thing I did when I got home was I I wrote a thank you note to him, just to thank him for the for the uh, for the time because as we know, time is the most precious commodity anybody's got, and the more successful folks are, the more in demand they are. That's in very very precious reserve. So those are three very simple ways. And, and, and I think the other way is uh, to try as best you can to be authentic. And that's tricky because, as I've said a thousand times, it's not like I'm going whitewater rafting with Andrew Luck every other weekend. <laughs> that's not the truth of the dynamic. But to be respectful, efficient, open, and listen, those, I think, uh, are all serve, and they're all utterly common sense when you hear them. Yeah, but it's amazing how many people don't do those things, and that's fantastic advice that you just gave. When you were at Sports PR Summit, it was funny, you said on stage, you said, here are the three things you need to know about storytelling, and everyone pulled out their notebooks, pulled out their phones. It was like, you know, God was giving us the three commandments that were hanging that there's really 13 commandments instead of 10. And here are the three additional ones. I've never seen a room move to write something down faster than they did when you you said these things. But you said, did it move you? Did it surprise you? Did it reveal a transcendent fact? Those right. are the, the when you went right. When I had mentioned that there were three ways really to try to to have a story be memorable. Right. And, and I think that's a very simple, workable goal for any story that we're trying to, to convey in radio, in television, in print, in any medium. But you want the story to last for a moment or hopefully more than that in the viewer's mind. Does she think of it after the TV is turned off? Does he think of it after the page is turned and those three ways, and there's obviously a thousand more, but those three, and as I had said at the summit, in order of ascending difficulty, meaning the easiest is did it move somebody? I'm not saying it's easy to move people. It's not. But to find space in their heart or mind and push them one way or another towards something is not that easy, but it's the easiest of those three. Did it move me? Number two, did it surprise me is significantly harder because many stories – and, and I would raise my hand at this, can seem to follow a formula, even as you try to treat each on its specific moments and merit. And number one, again, did it deliver a transcendent fact, a threshold I'm not certain I've ever crossed in my career? I've, I've, I'm aware of it, tried to do it, but I'm not certain that I ever have. Did it make you look at something differently than you once did? And with a new and or different understanding, a different lens. That, to me, is the highest calling of any reporting or storytelling. And I think those are three ways. There's 103 more, I'm sure. But those are three as a cheat sheet that I try to keep in mind. We'll return to our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Sports Business Radio is sponsored by Boingo Wireless, the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the U.S., Today's sports fans expect strong, fast mobile connections at their favorite stadiums. Research shows that fans will leave at halftime if they cannot get connected, which is part of the reason why professional and collegiate sports venues alike work with Boingo to manage their wireless networks. As the world's leading connectivity expert, Boingo knows how to make a venue's vision for the connected fan experience a reality. They are the only company that can provide end-to-end wireless service so teams can focus on the big game, not on their network. Boingo designs, installs, and manages Wi-Fi and cellular networks at university stadiums like K-State and the University of Houston and major league venues like Soldier Field, Phillips Arena, and Vivint Smart Home Arena. We're excited to showcase how technology is changing the business of sports, led by companies like Boingo. Boingo connects you to the people and things you love, like sports. For more information, visit boingo.com or email sports at boingo.com. Now back to our conversation. The other thing you said at Sports PR Summit, which many people, including myself, took note of, is you said, we want waves, not lines. A line is a box score. A wave 
is a story. Explain that. Right, and I think that what we want is any story that's worth telling has a high and a low, or to use the most ancient definitions of drama, right, has change and resolution. That if there is no change, if we're just traveling from point A to point B without ever going up or going down, we're really not delivering anything other than a report, a story should wave up and down. It should have a high point. It should have a low point. It should have a turning point. And if it has those points, we're probably going to discover some change to the character. And hopefully, if we're invested to us through what we've experienced in watching, reading, or hearing it. Um, And again, that's a mission I try to answer and don't always do. Sometimes I, I think that, uh, and this is, a, a, I think, a recurring flaw that I have in the work that I do. That sometimes I think I'm tabbed with telling stories that are sad, and it starts sad, and it grows darker, and it doesn't take you anywhere other than that, other than down. And down is a line. It's not a wave. So you have to be authentic and true to the story, but I think that structure can be helpful as a guide. I'm sure you're told of stories, moving, compelling stories all the time. People see your pieces and they go, I want Tom to do a story on my story or a story I've heard of. What's the mixture for you with I find my own stories versus I'm going to do a story that was brought to me? I am well below the Mendoza line on pitching my own stories. Uh, I'm, I'd say fewer than two out of 10 actually get greenlit. And I, I'd like to think it's not because I'm a terrible hitter, but it's the quality of the pitching. Um, we just, it, listen, in media, in what you do, Brian, in what I do, and we could make this case that in many, many, many fields, not all, but many, the greatest currency is ideas. And pitching is a great presentation of ideas. It's a great display, right? It's great proof to say we had this idea about. Sometimes a story comes, yes, from specific knowledge of an event, but it can also come from a broader idea. And I'll I'll give you an example. Um, To think of, well, what was the aftermath of this one moment that we all saw is a simple idea, and to give that a little more specificity. If we were to think to ourselves, in the last 10 years, what has been a, a notoriously blown call? And then to visit that, visit the characters involved in that call. How did that call affect their lives, if at all? And if so, in what ways? And that's a broad idea, but then we can search for examples that would illustrate it. And then, of course, there's the more straightforward, hey, did you know that this player on our roster has this experience? I think this is worth sharing with people. Um, And I could give you countless examples of that. I mean, uh, uh, from... Uh, here's one example of, of a story that we did, Brian, uh, you know, several years ago on game day that we did about Phil Bennett, who at the time, you know, was the defensive coordinator at Baylor. His wife went out jogging on a what seemed to be, you know, a, a fine morning and a sudden storm rolled in and she was struck by lightning and killed. Oh, my God. He had two young children at the time, and in the space of one moment, his life was altered forever. Hmm. In having a wonder, as a guy that, as you know, you know the hours that coaches keep, as a guy who now had to remake his life around these two children who were very young at the time, we went back to tell the story because he was at Kansas State when this happened. And now Baylor was going to play Kansas State. That was the hook to tell the story. And even though it had happened more than a decade earlier, uh, Bennett was incredibly moving. 
talking about the challenges of looking at his children after having to tell them that their mom had passed. And in a moment, I'll never forget looking at me and telling me what he told the kids. As they looked at them, the three of them alone in the house, everyone else gone, and saying, I'm all you got now. Hmm. Wow. And if you're unmoved by that, then okay. But to me, I think that's universal in its power and in its vulnerability of a guy who, and Phil Bennett is a demonstrative, strong, archetypal defensive coach. He's that guy, you know, with the square jaw and the battle chest, and he's a great, great guy. And I think seeing that, now, man, now maybe when teams are scoring touchdowns against Baylor and Baylor's making a defensive stop, you now have a different interest, perhaps, where you didn't have one. And sometimes I think stories could create that, too. Long way to go to give you an example of where stories come from, but that's just one example. Let's look behind the scenes a little bit with your team. How many people are working with you? I know you brought a producer to Sports PR Summit. Uh, How many people are working with you when you're putting together these incredible features on ESPN? Well, and I really mean this when I say I am in many ways the smallest contributor. Uh, I mean, I get to present it, which is fantastic, but uh, believe me, we have the we have just an unparalleled and embarrassment of riches when it comes to the stable of producers that I mean I'm able to work with. I could I could name twenty five right now, from Ben Hauser to John Mitten to Kristen Lapis to Martin Kotobasian to Scott Harv to Jose Morales. I mean, I mean, I could believe me to Ben Weber to. Danny Arruda, you, you can hear. I could keep going, believe me, uh, very easily on how tremendous the producers are that we work with. We also are blessed to work with some of the greatest crews in the country. I would say the greatest, whether it be Seventh Movement or Twiz and his production team or Mike Balaka, or these are unbelievable crews. And then we have a phenomenal both in-house, we have tremendous editors, and out-of-house, we have great editors at, at Bluefoot and at Victory Pictures, and et cetera. And I could go on and on. So it's a it's a it's an army. And then we're also overseen. And there will, there will forever be a, you know, a creative tension there between you know, scripts that get put together and then editors that need them trimmed down to time. And I've tried to to do my best to be collaborative there, and I'm sure some would say I am, and others would say, Tom, you really need to work on that. But uh, believe me, my contribution, I would say, is one of many in having a piece on television reach the air. As somebody who's written a book, Brian, I could tell you that nothing is as collaborative as television. Nothing. In a day and age where, you know, we look at social media and the Internet, and it's you got to do things in 90 seconds. You got to do things right, in 60 right. seconds. I watch your pieces and they're 15 minutes or 20 minutes. And I still feel like they're not long enough. But you have been given this incredible inventory, for lack of a better term, you know, within SportsCenter and E60 and, and platforms like that. Maybe talk to us a little bit about storytelling in 15 to 20 minutes versus 90 seconds. Well, I can't overstate the the gratitude that I feel and my understanding of how extraordinarily rare and privileged the position I'm in is regarding exactly what you just said. Right? We talked a little bit earlier about time being the most precious commodity. Right. Well, I mean, I, I I'm I have so much time in my part of the process. Many times in gathering, we just worked on a a 90-minute documentary that aired in primetime on E1 and on E2 on Ryan Leaf with Don Mitten, a tremendous producer. We worked on it for a year. Wow. You know, And then we got 90 minutes to tell it. We told it in 60 minutes on E60 and then 90 minutes primetime. So, so many times I have 
young reporters and young producers, young journalists who are in TV. And I always tell them, I give them that disclaimer. Please, you know, I'm going to give you some things. I'm going to make some suggestions, but it's not lost on me that you're trying to achieve this in 90, 120, 160, 150, three minutes, as opposed to 6, 8, 10, 12, 30, 60, 90 minutes, which is incomparable. But I, but I can say this, from having worked in local TV as a one-man band and having to turn daily stories at 90 seconds, the one thing, or I guess the two things that work, if it's 90 minutes or 90 seconds, the fundamental, the strongest fundamental is sound. Hmm. If you can interview people properly and have them convey the heart of the story, that's what it's about. You're a window. You know, people shouldn't notice the lattice work in the panes. They should just be looking at the view. And that's what sound is about. It connects the viewer to the story. Uh, and the other thing is writing. To try to write in a, something I continue to struggle with, you know, not in an, not in an overly adjectival or overwrought way, but in a simple, clear way, driven by verbs, to just to write with clarity. Clarity is the ultimate commandment, especially, Brian, as you know, because on TV you get one shot, and then it's gone. I realize somebody can go back and watch something on, online again, but we don't do that either. You get one chance and the story's gone. So if it's unclear, every piece of work is wasted. So clarity in writing and the power of sound, power of the, of the interview. Speaking of sound, one of the things I've noticed so much about your feature pieces, your cadence with your narration, it's absolutely captivating. Is that something you've worked on over the years? Does it come naturally to you? Because I find it keeps me on the edge of my seat when I'm watching one of your features. I actually think, Brian, I've worked harder and harder at, tracking over the years because I think I track too slowly and I think that I and I sometimes get into uh, arguments with the producers who like to open the tracks up and make them a little a little slower because I I'm trying to just say it just read it and not say here is a very special sentence that I really like I hope and I've worked hard at at trying to get away from that, and I haven't really succeeded, to be honest. I still think it's very hard for me to watch the pieces. I almost never watch them when they first air. Um, I've obviously seen many cuts of them, but uh, many times the weakest part of the pieces that I do are my own track. Uh, that's not to say that there's a lot of people who are great at tracking. I don't know that there are, but... No, it's a forever a work in progress for me. It's something I need to continue to get better at. So I appreciate you saying that. It's a very kind evaluation. Now, it, I really do think it's it's actually one of the signature parts of your features versus anyone else's is your narration and your cadence with your narration. The other thing I notice, and you know, this is probably you and your team coming together on this: the use of still pictures versus video. Yeah. So. You know, I'll give you an example. Uh, most everyone, I'm sure, has seen A Dog's Journey with the dog, Arthur. And right. I swear to you, I have a dog, too, and I rescued the dog. And at the end of the piece, you bring on the song, I Will Follow You. And I lost it. I mean, who's watching that thing that has a dog and doesn't listen to that song and just start bawling? And to me, you know, Brian, let, let me let me interrupt a second because this has caught me. Kristen Lapis, who's just phenomenal, produced that piece. He chose that song, and I, we both, Kristen and myself, we have been really surprised by the sentiments that you're sharing and how often we've heard them. We 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 thought the story was. You know, fascinating story about what what this man, what Michael decided to do, and what they endured in the adventure race and the rescuing of Arthur and all those things. 
but the emotional response to the story, I, I mean, has shocked me. Because I don't, I, I love dogs, don't get me wrong, but I, I just did not think the story held that kind of emotion for viewers, and I was dead wrong. Oh, my goodness. We heard from so many people sharing things like you're sharing very kindly about, my God, I was so emotional when I watched that. And Kristen and I were like, really? We thought people would be more fascinated or captivated or whatever it is. But people were very, very moved by Arthur. And that surprised us. It really did. I'll give you another example. Uh Amazing story. Another one that I just totally bawled at is uh, Logan Schonert, the number. Yeah. The young boy yeah. with a brain tumor, his love for Tom Brady. So, you know, you could tell, and, and may, you know this better than I do, but my, my takeaway was that Tom Brady didn't want cameras in for his meeting with the boy, but you had still pictures of Tom Brady signing for for Logan and their interaction but it was pictures versus video, but it was still very, very powerful. Um, when do you decide to use pics and when do you decide to use video? And is it sometimes decided for you because someone like Tom Brady says, you know what, we're not going to do video, but we'll allow you to use a pic? That's exactly right. However, in, in Brady's case, there is a little bit of a disclaimer in that we did have a little bit of video. Not a lot, um, but he did allow us to shoot a little bit of video. And we decided, and it's wonderful that you've noticed this, we decided not to use it. Huh. Because we thought the still pictures actually preserve and represent more accurately the wonder of the moment for a 10-year-old boy who's meeting his idol. Totally agree. That, and we thought that, you know, you don't even see, see the video. It's that moment captured. It, it's that, that still image. That still image. That's what we decided to show. No, it, it was that, brilliant. That, that's why. Yeah, but I, 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 it's interesting that you noticed that. The other thing is, I don't think you know you. You've interviewed Tiger Woods in Crises, Manti Teo. We'll get to that in a minute. But I don't think there would be a tougher job, especially. I know you're the parent to two kids. I have a daughter who's twelve. You're sitting on Logan's bed, and he knows he's going to die, and you're interviewing him. Oh, my God. I mean, just wow. Like, that would be, out of everything that you do as a journalist, that would be the toughest thing to do. In, in and I've interviewed children in very sensitive situations in the past. Uh, I am a parent, and I, as you mentioned, Brian, I have two kids. Uh, our son and our daughter, who um, one is in middle school, the other is in elementary school. And one thing that we always do is I I ask for a parent to be in the room, hmm. off camera, and probably out of the eye line of the child, but in the room, so that if the parent senses in any way that I'm moving into a place that the parent doesn't feel comfortable with, he can tell me. Right. He can stop us. And um, I think we've done that from the very beginning of some of the stories we've done involving children, which are obviously the most heartbreaking stories when, when it's about living and dying. And we did the same with Logan, and uh, we're always astounded by how direct a child is. Mm -hmm. How I don't know if I wish I had more wisdom to understand why and where that comes from. Maybe there just isn't the cunning or the, uh, the distance or the politeness or whatever it may be. Maybe it's just not the language that could build layers away from being that direct. But as in the case of Logan, you know, in going through this, what do you want to tell your mom, Logan Schoenhart, the boy you referred to, who passed away um, shortly after the Patriots won the Super Bowl, who idolized Tom Brady, and Brady had sent him a message um, through his fight through a many, many staged brain tumor um, that he just wanted to tell his mom he was sorry. And that's obviously heartbreaking. 
and real. You know, I'm sorry, Mom, that I'm dying. And uh, you know, when you hear a mother and you hear a father share that story with you, and then you hear Logan talk about his experience, um, the, the pressure you feel to honor that extraordinary trust that's being placed in you to share this part of a family's journey, it feels massive. Um, and you want to honor the story and tell the truth, but you very much want to honor that trust first and foremost. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great way to put it. When I when I think of you and the stories that you do, you're trustworthy. Like, and that's why these people open up with you in a way that, look, I, most of the people that I interview on Sports Business Radio over the last 14 years, I, I have some sort of a relationship with them. And when you have some sort of a relationship with someone, they're going to have a conversation with you that's different than someone they don't know. Most of the people you're interviewing, you don't know, you haven't met before, but they trust you. And that says a lot about you, Tom, because that is not easy to get someone to tell, you know, these these unbelievably emotional stories. Another story that you did was the man in the red bandana about the young man who worked in one of the World Trade Centers, I think the South Tower, and he had a red bandana and he wanted to be part of the fire department and uh, he saved what, 12 people. And I guess my question to you is that was also an incredible story, but of all the stories you've done, that was the story that you turned into a book in 2016. What was it about that story where you said, not only do I want to tell that through video and, and through my platforms that I normally story tell through, but I want to also turn this into a book. Well, I think this, I could talk at you know, too long for us and anyone who'd want to listen to answer that. Uh, but I can give you two very short answers on, on why that story. Number one is when the 9-11 Museum opened in 2014, President Obama was the keynote speaker. And of the 2,977 souls who perished in the attacks, he chose in the keynote to speak only about one by name, one. Wells Crowther, 24 years old, Boston College lacrosse player, who was working at a, a firm called Sandler O'Neill on the 104th floor of the South Tower. And as you described, Brian, uh, after the second plane hit, he was making his way down the only functional stairwell, and rather than continue down, he got to the 78th floor sky lobby, uh, the exchange point where express elevators let out, people took local elevators to the highest reaches of the tower. And he just saw a, a horrific scene where the lower wing of Flight 175 out of Boston had exploded through the south facade of the tower. Uh, you know, there were scores of people dead and dying, and he led a group of people into the stairwell and down towards safety, covering his face with a red bandana. Um, no one knew his name at the time. He got down to the 61st floor, and then he went back up, and he did it again, and he let another group down. Ultimately, he made it all the way down himself, only not to leave, but to go and try to help the FDNY at their command post, which was set up in the lobby. And uh, when the tower collapsed, ultimately, months later, his remains were found the only civilian surrounded by a dozen FDNY firefighters. I've, I've worked on a lot of stories, but no story has lodged in me that deeply. My brother worked on the 81st floor of the South Tower for 15 years. My sister worked across the street at the World Financial Center on the other side of West Street. Uh, there's many, many reasons why 9-11 resonates very deeply in our lives and this story this told through one single lens i just know will stay with me forever and writing the book was a tremendous challenge as well as a great opportunity scott moore as a penguin reached out and uh we started to, our work together on it um and we've just been thrilled with the response to it it made the bestseller list and 
um, is now, you know, universities are assigning it as their freshman year reading and high schools as their all school read. And we've just been really humbled by the reaction to it. Well, and go- going to look at, the, I'm just going to add, but if you look at the, really the ultimate definition of, you know, really the archetypal definition of a hero, that's what Wells Crowther was. And it goes back to the formula we discussed earlier that you brought up at Sports PR Summit. Did it move you? Absolutely. Did it surprise you? Absolutely. Did it reveal a transcendent fact? Yes. It had those three elements in the story. Just an incredible story. I know you only have a little bit of time, and there's several other things I want to get to. So let me talk to you about... Uh, something else you said at Sports PR Summit. And again, you've interviewed Tiger Woods in 2010. You were the first person that interviewed him when he was in crises. You've interviewed Manti Teo. You said, even if they won't answer, you have to ask the tough question. If not, the viewer asks, where is my envoy? Or where are you, my envoy, I think is, is how you said it. So essentially, you feel like you have a duty to your audience that is tuning in to ask the tough question. And even if they don't answer, then, you know, you did your job. So it's interesting when people are in crises, again, my strategic PR hat, if I wear that for a minute, a lot of people will give you bad body language. Sometimes they'll give you the the one or two word answers because they're trying to play defense and they're going with the less is more approach. How does it differ for you when you interview someone in crises versus interviewing someone when they're not in crises? Well, let me let me start, Brian, with, with the use of a term which I think is a little bit of a tricky term, and that's the term "tough question." Okay. Um, I I don't know that that there are particularly tough questions. I I think that there are direct questions, and they're often perceived as tough or hard. Um, but I think they can they can be asked fairly. It, any question can be asked fairly if it's asked in an open-ended way and hopefully in a neutral way. Now, that doesn't mean you'd want to answer it. Uh, you know, a, a question like not in a crisis or accountability setting, but in an emotional story, a question that just no one in your life typically asks you, Brian, right? If, if uh, God forbid, this somebody you love who has someone close to them who is ill or someone who suffered, you know, a terrible injury, whatever it may be, a question like, what's your fear? That is a very, quote-unquote, tough question. Mm-hmm. But it's just short, open, and direct. And I think so much in life, in, in, in what we do and well beyond it, right, is a byproduct of expectation. And I think letting someone know, you obviously never let anybody know the questions you're going to ask in advance, ever. But to say to somebody, listen, the questions are going to be straightforward, and I'm going to pay you the respect of asking you them directly. Because if if I don't, this won't serve you and it won't serve us. It won't serve anyone or anything. And that's why perhaps asking Tiger a question like, why did you get married? Which is a, you can certainly label as a tough question. I mean, it it took me forever, for example, in a sideline role to figure out, I can't believe how long it took me to realize just this question, to ask this question, what went wrong? Hmm. Is that a tough question? You know, that's the question I asked Nick Saban after Bama lost in the last second of the national championship. Right. What went wrong? And it's certainly not a soft question, but it's also not a question that is burdened with, let me show how much I know or how smart I can be. (laughs) Because I think that's what a viewer, a viewer just wants to God. Damn, you were leading, you were the fate. What went wrong? Right. It took me forever to realize that's a valuable question. So I think by asking a question directly, but in an open way and in a neutral way, it goes a long way. It does. And listen, there's obviously questions that people don't want to answer, and we understand that. But asking them, 
That's what we do. And then it's up to the subject to answer any way he wishes. You're you know, calling. I'm, 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 I'm also a fan, Brian, of the question. You know, I use this word, uh, you know, a ton. I use the word characterize because I think it's a neutral word. Um, and, you know, uh, we have John Sawatsky at ESPN as an interview guru who has taught me a ton and taught everybody at ESPN who's in the role of interviewing a ton. Uh, and one of his big words is characterize. And so I think, you know, to say to somebody, for example, how would you characterize your team's effort? You know, if a team failed. Fair question. I, I just think, yeah, fair question. It doesn't, it's not a soft question. It's not a quote unquote hard question. It's fair. Right? It's fair. We'll return to our conversation after a word from our sponsor. The Sports PR Summit Social Media Workshop returns to San Francisco on Wednesday, July 26, 2017 at Twitter headquarters, an invite-only venue. The full-day, invite-only event for senior digital and social media professionals working in sports provides an opportunity to hear and learn from top media, sports, and technology brands. Attendees leave with a better understanding of how to plan and distribute digital content, engage fans online, and monetize their efforts in the sports digital environment. View the event schedule and register to attend at sportsprsummit.com. I hope to see you on July 26th. Now back to our conversation. Going back to what you just said about interviewing people specifically in crises, you said you would never give someone questions in advance. We had Jeremy Schapp, who I know you know and have tremendous respect for at Sports PR Summit a few years ago, also did a conversation with uh, Rick Buecher. And, you know, he said it really varies. Like he said, uh, the takeaway for me was he said, you got to get him in the seat. So if there was an if there was a negotiation over do I need to show you some of the questions I'm going to ask this person in crises in advance to get them in the seat, then maybe I'll do it. In other cases, no, I'm not going to give my my questions in advance for you. Is it like absolutely firm? Like, I don't care about getting the person in the seat. I will not give the questions in advance. Or is that you and your team deciding well, if we can be the first ones to interview Tiger Woods, maybe we will give Mark Steinberg a few questions in advance. Right, right. Well, and and we didn't. I, and I listen. I buy of the uh, you know Jeremy to me is the best in the business. I think there's a difference though between parameters and specifics. Mm-hmm. Parameters, yeah, we give all the time. And I hope I don't sound like a politician right now, but I do think parameters are oftentimes part of a difficult interview to, to get. Just say, listen, just so you know, we have to ask about X, Y, and Z. He can answer any way he wants, but we also know we're going to ask about A, B, and C, too. But in terms of the exact language of a question, no, I I mean, I I did the first sit-down with Art Bryles, and believe me, that was a very tricky negotiation uh, with with Jimmy Sexton and with Art himself and Jimmy's agent. And ultimately, you know, there were very hard questions to ask Art Bryles in the wake of the Baylor scandal. And one of the questions I asked, which, again, I think is a quote-unquote tough question, I said, you know, Art, this is the very end of the interview, I said, Art, you won a lot of games. But respectfully, what, if anything, did you lose? And his answer was, some of my soul. Hmm. I remember that. You know, again, he could answer that any way he wants, um, but that's a powerful answer. And you know, and then it was the follow. Many times, as you know too, Brian, it's the follow up. It's the follow to questions that that really yield the best answers too. So uh, let's change topics for a, a moment. The state of journalism right now. I go speak in journalism classes, as I'm sure you do, and it is. An evolving, uh, I'm not going to say declining industry, but it's certainly different than it was. And look, ESPN just had recent layoffs. And, you know, I think one of the things that the mainstream media is struggling with is how do we pivot to become more sustainable? And, 
you know, again, you have the fortune of being able to tell long form stories and tell them on a number of different platforms. But, you know, I have friends that work at local newspapers and local TV stations. And, you know, obviously, again, ESPN and Sports Illustrated, there's a lot of entities out there that are shrinking because of the evolving industry that's in right now. Like, where do you see this all going? Or do you do you not really? I know you're a busy guy, so maybe you don't have time to think about it. But when I'm doing things like Sports PR Summit and I'm putting together intelligent conversations, I'm thinking about where is this industry going? No, I think it's a great question. I think anyone who doesn't think about it is in denial. Uh, There's no question that how content gets consumed, how it gets distributed, how it gets monetized, are crucial questions to the lifeblood of the business. Uh, from taking a look, for example, at the New York Times and, and how they found a way to turn ultimately to a paywall and to have an explosion in digital subscription as well as their printed newspaper, uh, I think is a fascinating case study. When it comes to broadcast, listen, it's no secret ESPN has lost subscribers. But there's also placed a large, large bet on what a lot of people would perceive, Brian, and I don't know if you'd agree, to be the last great bulwark against video on demand, and that's live event. And if you want to look at how the NBA playoffs rated, that bet, at least for now, despite how high the, the uh, how high all league rights have become, whether that's a bubble or not is a topic for another time, the NBA playoffs rated well. They rated well. You know, the Super Bowl rates well. The NFL playoffs rate well. Um, live events, award shows, things that can't be VOD'd rate well. So in the other part, the part which is, well, what can be watched on demand? Can you create signature content? You know, OJ Made in America is signature content. Amazing. So much so that it, right, uh, so much so that it did won the highest award yeah. in any venue of storytelling by winning the Oscar in documentary. So it, if you can create, I think what it does is it places an even greater premium on signature storytelling and content, as well as how you deliver the live event. I think in a way, the pressures of the business are clarifying they're demanding, but also clarifying. That would be my answer. Oh, that's a great answer. And you're right about the OJ Made in America. That was the best documentary I've seen, bar none, long-form documentary. When I first saw it, it was like, what, five uh, five nights? I was like, five nights? Because I lived in L.A. when all of that happened and had a front-row seat you know, with Rodney King and and just all of that stuff. And so it really hit home with me in a way that it might not have if I hadn't lived there during that time. And I just thought at the end of it, I was like, this could have been five more nights because it was so well done. And it it was just wow. It, It transcended so many different things. It wasn't a sports documentary. It wasn't a news documentary. It was it was just so well done and so compelling. So I totally agree with you. I mean, I joke with my friends. You're going to laugh at this. But uh, if ESPN just, like, ran your features all day long, like, <laughs> I'd be fine with that. I would just sit there and watch all of your features loop back to back to back to back. And <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we, we need to get you out more then, Brian. We really do. No. Uh, I, as, as Listen, as for OJ, I will just say this, um, you know, Ezra Edelman and uh, Libby Geist and the whole team with 30 for 30 that, that put that together. Um, I think that and people might think this is just a heresy. I think OJ made in America could have been nominated for best picture, not documentary. Yeah, picture. I would agree. And I think it could have got a nomination in that category too. Um, I just think it was a brilliant piece of work and obviously so do many people. You have a son and a daughter, as we discussed earlier. Uh, are they interested in what you do? I think I read an interview when they were a few years younger. You said as they get older, you might like to take them on some of your assignments and have them see what dad does for work. Are they at that point yet? 
Uh, you know, our, um, our son, Jack, loves sport. He loves everything related to sport. He's come uh, to game day. Uh, he comes to at least one game day trip a year, and he also usually comes to a bowl game, whether it's the semi. Usually it's the semi. Uh, for the past eight years, they have come uh, with me at different times to things like Wimbledon, um, which is a wonderful experience for them well beyond the sporting part of it. Uh, but I'd say he's more interested than our daughter is, who is, uh, they're very different souls and have very different natures. And, you know, um, we're just the luckiest people, Diane and I, that they're healthy and engaged and happy and we hope humble and grateful. I saw where you said your wife, Diane, is your sounding board and she purchases every piece of clothing that you wear on air. True. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that may be overstated, but also <laughs> only slightly, only slightly. I use this. She rolls her eyes every time I say this. Um, uh, I just use the same description of her all the time, Brian. She's, listen, the seating chart may change a little bit, but basically she's three seats from Jesus. That's who she is. Wow. You are a lucky, lucky guy. Let me tell you that. Um, last question, and I know Rick asked you about this a little bit at Sports PR Summit, but but I'll ask you again so our listeners can hear. Why are you not on social media? We just had a conversation. I I I I, I can't make this up. We had a conversation yesterday <laughs> with our son and daughter about this because our son, who is thirteen, would like to be on Instagram, and I said, for now, no. And I, gave, I said, not never, but for now, no. And I gave him my reasons, and, uh, and he wasn't buying it, I'll tell you that. The, the truth is, as I said there, I'm just pathetically thin-skinned, and I think I see a lot of Twitter as, and maybe I'm wrong, but I see a lot of Twitter as negative. I should be on social media. It's, it's a mistake for me not to be. But the three reasons against it for me are, and you can judge him, that's the biggest reason, by the way, is my own, sort of my own thin skin. But beyond that, number one is it's a huge time drain. Number two is I think it can create a layer between what's real and what's presented. Hmm. And I already do that enough to a degree, try to pierce that in the work that we do. And, and number three, that it, if I want to have a real connection um, I got to hope that my work does that and, and maybe it doesn't and it falls short, but if that's the case, then I got to get better at, at my work, not better at my Twitter post, <laughs> and not better at my Instagram photo. I got to get better at the story. Um, and maybe the last one is just that, you know what? I'm just not that interesting. The stories are, but I don't know that the people don't care much about the storyteller. Well, it's interesting because a lot of journalists now, like their editors or the people they work for, they're like, this is part of the job. You have to be out there pushing your brand, your content, everything that you're producing. This is another way that we can promote that content. So, No question. And that's a mistake for me. That is. That's a mistake. No doubt. And I'm, believe me, I still have people tell me, and I maybe I will correct it this year. It's not never. It's just not now. <laughs> yeah. No, it makes sense. And your reasons are, are really, really good. And I'm I'm very fascinated. I just had the same conversation with my 12-year-old about social media, and I let her get on Instagram. But our rule was, I have access to your account anytime I want. I can shut that thing down in two seconds if I see anything on there that's inappropriate. It's a uh, an account where you have to ask to, you have to request to be a follower. So like, I can see uh, if she's friends with the right people, so to speak. So I can really safeguard what she's doing. And it's allowing her to, I guess, uh, be in that world a little bit without overexposure, so to speak. So, it, But it's a struggle that so many of my friends who are parents are also going through with kids in this age group that are like, do you let them on? Do you not let them on? And I don't think there's a, a black or white answer, a yes or no, but it's an interesting discussion. We could probably do a whole podcast just on that. <laughs> I don't I don't think my son would be listening to it, I'll tell you that. He'd just be saying, let me get on, let me get on. Oh my gosh. Tom, this has been such a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Uh, I am such a, a fan of your work. Keep up the great work. Thank you again for being at Sports PR Summit in New York, and uh, we hope to talk to you soon. 
Thank you so, so much for having me, Brian. It was very, very kind, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you, sir. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. Thanks to our friends at Boingo Wireless for powering our Sports Business Radio Roadshow. Follow them online at boingo.com or on Twitter at Boingo. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast. Go to iTunes, type in Sports Business Radio, rated in the top 50 business news podcasts. You can also find our show on Audio Boom via the TuneIn Radio and Stitcher apps, and of course at sportsbusinessradio.com. Follow me on Twitter in between shows at SB Radio. Follow us on Instagram at Sports Business Radio. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is David Stern. He's the commissioner of the NBA. It is always a pleasure, Brian. Bill Hancock, he's the executive director of the Bull Championship Series. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the world champion New Orleans Saints. Pleasure to be with you guys. Mr. Allen, thanks for joining me. Thank you. My guest is Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. Oh, happy to join you. My pleasure. My guest is Eric Spolstra. He's the head coach of the Miami Heat. Brian, appreciate it. Glad to, glad to be on the show. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. Visit sportsbusinessradio.com and subscribe to our free iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and stay connected to the business side of sports only with Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio.